You know, Jay, I wish Storm got to have more solo fantasy adventures. She's such a cool protagonist in that genre. It's a shame that Nightcrawler gets the lion's share. Dimension hopping, pirates... Oh, Miles, Storm has totally had pirate adventures. Not in Kitty's fairy tale. No, no, in the Savage Land. Well, sort of in the Savage Land. She saved a lady named Marin from a dinosaur and got to run around and fight pirates with her. There are pirates in the Savage Land? Well, yes and no. There are pirates in a nearby dimension with a portal to the Savage Land. I imagine Storm would be great to have with you on a boat. You'd never need to worry about the wind. True, but also irrelevant in this case, as the pirates in question were in fact sky pirates. Sky pirates are the best kind of pirates. I wholeheartedly agree. Storm mostly fought them, though. So did Storm have a flying ship? I hope she had a flying ship. Well, she flew around in Marin's ship on the back of an enormous flying fox, which is to say a fox who could fly, not the actual animal a flying fox. Anyway, it was very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of surprised she went back to the X-Men after that. She kinda had to, things just got too weird for her. Because of flying pirates? Because of feelings. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 313 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the X-Men. Jay, thank you again for uh, filling in with that awesome interview with Bob Prohl while I was away. I'm excited to be back, but I'm happy there was such a rad episode in the meantime. Meanwhile, though, we have a miniseries to tell you about, because we are in the 95-96 era, and Marvel decided that one of the basic building blocks of life was the miniseries. Or maybe it was like an amino acid, there's like guanine, adenine, cytosine, thymine, and miniseries. Well, those are, those are bases in DNA. Um, yeah, it, it, it could be. It, would, would you say that it's the powerhouse of the cell? What is the mitochondrion of, of Marvel? Um, probably continuity errors. Ooh. See, I'm trying to find a way to connect all of this to Parasite Eve now and completely failing. That's what mitochondria always reminds me of as well. Like, most people think powerhouse of the cell. I think weird, fleshy opera singer monsters being fought by a cop. Mitochondria and Christmas. Those are the things. So, this miniseries specifically is the Storm miniseries, her first, uh, which is written as so many miniseries and titles of this era are by the slightly troubling at this point Warren Ellis. I'm really glad Storm finally got a series. This is a strange one for her. I mean, honestly, this is kind of a strange era for Storm in general in the mid-90s. This series is plagued by an issue that at this point I'm going to say is endemic to Ellis's work during this period, and that is poor pacing. This is a four-issue miniseries that I think would have made a very decent and probably adequate annual. Or maybe like an issue of X-Men Unlimited or something like that. Yeah, I could, I could see that working. But at the same time, hey... Awesome that Storm finally got a miniseries. Uh, she'll have other series later. She had an ongoing one a few years back that was freaking great, and I wish it was still going and wish it lasted forever. Yeah. 
As far as this one, though, this miniseries is rooted very, very strongly in some stuff we've covered recently, specifically the Gene Nation and Marrow storyline. This is almost a direct follow-up to it, which is why we're covering it now, even though it technically takes place a little bit later in continuity. It manages to do so without bringing up Onslaught, though, which I appreciate. He's actually, like, right off-panel on every single page, just, you know, onslaughting around. I mean, he's just off-panel in every comic published post, like, 1996. I think he's hiding behind my computer screen right now. He keeps moving every time I turn my head, so I just catch him out of the periphery of my vision. I feel like we would make a really good onslaught. Oh, okay, like if, you know, my hatred and your hope combined into a big robot demon psychic thing, or vice versa? I mean, I think you're definitely the Xavier analog in this, in this one. But I have so much hair. But I have more capes. I don't actually have more capes. I don't have any capes right now, and it's very sad. I have a single cape. Um, I haven't had time to get a Halloween costume together, so all I know is that it's probably going to involve my, like, $10 convenience store Dracula cape that I work into every costume I possibly can. I mean, my wife today asked if I had any red flannel shirts so she could go as Mark Trail, and I'm having really complicated feelings right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, speaking of, the new Mark Trail is great. Listeners, if you haven't right? seen it, you should. Have you read today's strip yet? Uh, was that the one with, like, the, the infinite crisis on crisis infinite, on Mark infinite Marks? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I'm still waiting for Days of Future Mark. Oh, damn. Oh, damn. Oh, Rusty? I feel like Rusty as Cable makes a weird lot of sense. Okay, okay, and this makes sense. Uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with both the X-Men and Mark Trail, I apologize. I realize few people probably are. Do I need to explain Mark Trail? I feel like I've explained it on the show before, but maybe I've just gone on about it online. I think you've explained it at least somewhat on the show, uh, largely to me when I, was, when I was still but aversion to the concept of the glory of Mark Trail and how he tackles people all the time. It's an amazing comic strip. What I really love right now, my, my favorite thing is, is the comments um, on the site where people are freaking the hell out over nothing, but they've mostly quieted down, um, except for a couple people who are very worried that, um, that, that having, having Jules Rivera as the cartoonist is going to make the strip political because it, it, no, it reminds me of when people get upset about X-Men quote unquote becoming political because Mark Trail is, is a strip that was literally just created to be a mouthpiece for pro state parks, pro environmentalist stances. <laughs> that was its function. That was its original intent. Oh, man. So they, they just come to Mark Trail for some escapism to see, you know, people in spandex punch bears. I've only read a little Mark Trail. I don't know if he ever punches a bear. He's friends with at least one bear. He hits some alligators with sticks. He knee tackles a lot of large men from behind by yelling surprise. He punches some guy so hard that his beard flies off once. Listeners, like I said, you should read Mark Trail. But I guess we should probably talk about X-Men. Yes, I bet Mark Trail and Wolverine would be friends. You know, I think they would. I think they would. They'd just sit in, in, in bewildered silence together a lot. And a bear would come up and they'd offer it a beer and it would, it would accept it and they'd all just kind of nod to each other and then go on. Mm. Bear with a beer. There's a reason those words are only one letter apart. I don't know what that reason is, but I know there is one. Anyway... Like we were saying, the Storm miniseries ties into some, into some X-Men backstory that's come up recently, so uh, let's talk about that. What's been up with Storm and all the Morlocky stuff she's been dealing with, Jay? Okay, so the Morlocks first showed up in the Bronze Age. They are, really were at this point, a group of mutants unable to pass as human who retreated to the sewers underneath New York to live in tentative peace. 
For complicated reasons, the X-Man Storm, early in her X-Men career, dueled the Morlocks leader Callisto for leadership of the group, and won. It was not that complicated. It involved some kidnappings, potential forced marriage, and a lot of Barbarella references. It really, really did. Anyway, after that, Storm proceeded to lead the Morlocks by largely not really putting forth any time or effort into leading the Morlocks. Because, you know, life, am I right? No, that's on Storm. Unfortunately, without an attentive leader, the Morlocks were largely slaughtered by supervillains during the first X-Men crossover, the Mutant Massacre. And they appeared to be finished off finally years later when Colossus's long-lost, deeply unstable, fairly terrible, and reality-shifting brother Mikhail took them over and apparently staged an enormous murder-suicide. However... However, a while back, a surviving Morlock, that being Thorn with two ends, convinced X-Force's leader Cable to perform the Ceremony of Light, an annual Morlock tradition that we'd never heard of before, that uses mirrors to let the surface world's light into the Morlock tunnels. It's supposed to specifically be the sunlight, right? Because this comes up in this series, and that detail bugged me. I don't know, I feel like as long as it's from the surface world, it can be any kind of light. But the ceremony at the time summoned a little Morlock girl named Sarah, who implied that the Morlocks were in fact alive and well, well, I mean, some of them anyway, just in another dimension. Not too long after that, Sarah reappeared, now much older, and going by the name Marrow. She was leading a group called Gene Nation in committing a great deal of violence against humans and related vandalism. So it turned out that Mikhail Rasputin hadn't killed the Morlocks. Instead, he'd just teleported them to a dimension where time moved faster, and now the Morlock kids had grown up into Morlock murderers and come back to the main world. Yay! Mm. Just like Callisto had before her, Marrow challenged Storm to a duel, saying that otherwise Marrow would use the detonator attached to her heart to blow up a bunch of human captives. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to us either. Just just go with it. It's what happened. It's X-Men. So Storm ripped out Marrow's heart, and that was that. Or was it? And that brings us to Storm number one, Sunburst and Snowblind. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Carl Story, colored by Joe Roses and Ariane Lenchuk, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I would like to state for the record that Joe Roses should probably apologize for this issue at some point. Yeah, because this is the only issue that Rosas does colors on with Lenchoak, although she's with she's in all the other issues. And the colors are weird, and that's strange, because Joe Rosas has done a perfectly fine job of coloring, like, dozens and dozens of comics that we've covered, so it's strange that it doesn't work in this issue. No, this is, this is specifically the coloring of someone who is trying to learn to use Photoshop. Fair enough, fair enough. Um... I mean, to be fair, I would do a much worse job with Photoshop. I don't know that Yes, but you're not a professional comics colorist. Not even remotely. So we've seen Terry Dodson's pencils before. Um, I've stated before that I like his work around this era better than I like his modern work. His modern work is a little too cheesecakey for my tastes. And it's even less so in this miniseries, because Carl Story's inks give Dodson's pencils this sort of sketchy, less glossy quality. That's actually kind of cool. I don't know whether it fits the story super well or doesn't. Like, I honestly don't know. But it's neat seeing Dodson's pencils look so different from what we're used to. We do, however, definitely get a panel of Wolverine and Storm discussing murder um, with Storm's lovingly rendered butt in the foreground. So, you know. Mm, 
but murder. What does that murder? Even mean? <laughs> is it is it murder of butts? Murder by butts? I'm not sure. Or possibly just an exclamation of surprise. But murder? I, I got nothing. Kids, please work this into your slang and then tell us what it means. <laughs> if you so desire. We're very tired. Have we mentioned that? Yeah, it's it's been kind of a fuck of a month on top of a fuck of a summer on top of a fuck of a year. Sure it has, yes. We recognize that we're not alone in this. Um, So, you know, solidarity, love, vague bewilderment. And butt murder, I guess. Anyway, let's talk fashion before we get any further into this miniseries, because part of what happens in this miniseries is that Storm gets a new outfit. So, for the most part in this series, she's in her standard 90s costume. That's the costume you may be familiar with from the Gold Team era, or maybe even more so from X-Men the Animated Series. We've talked about this before, but sometimes it seems to be drawn as a shiny white costume with kind of black shine marks, sometimes as a shiny black costume with white shine marks, sometimes it seems silver. In this case, it's clearly supposed to be black. I'm not really sure which I like better, like, the white outfit has a cool contrast to all the colors and shadows around Storm all the time, but I don't know. I like it white, but I also like the idea that it's like that one dress that was was a viral meme some time ago and everyone just sees it differently. Oh man, is Storm's outfit uh, golden white or blue and black? Yes. Is it Yanni? Is it Laurel? Who can even say? What? Oh, uh, it was some voice saying a word, and everyone was arguing about whether it was Yanni or Laurel, and uh, I forget which it sounded like to me, but I don't know. The internet's very confusing. Yes. Yes, it is. So we start with an actual cold open, as opposed to what we call our cold open. This is one that does indeed open in medias res, uh... With Cable heading down to the Morlock Tunnels, where he did the Ceremony of Light back in Cable number 15 with Thorn... And there he finds Storm dead, crushed under rubble. It's her miniseries and she's dead on like page two. I don't know what they're going to do with the rest of this. Miles, it's, it's the X-Men. You think that's going to stop her? It's true. But for now, for the sake of drama, we go back to earlier that day where Storm is having a really hard time with what happened with her and Marrow. You know, that time she had to rip out Marrow's heart because Marrow inexplicably attached a detonator to it. It's okay. She's got another. She does. I guess she's a Gallifreyan? I don't know. We'll get to that later. Later in this episode, in fact. So she goes to talk to some of her friends, and first she finds Wolverine. Wolverine, as you may recall, is living in the woods at this point outside the mansion because he refuses to live in a mansion where Sabretooth is being kept. You, like Storm, might assume that he is hunting for his food, especially based on the trail of tiny bones. I, an intellectual, actually was about to joke that he was probably just eating a bunch of KFC even before we saw the KFC box in the panel. So Logan's been out in the woods for weeks, he's eating greasy fast food, and his clothes are ripped up and disheveled enough that I'm pretty sure he hasn't washed them, or probably himself. We've talked about this before. Dear God, Logan must smell awful! At this point I assume he just kind of smells like the woods. And KFC. I don't think that's a good combination. I mean, I like both of those things in some ways. I, God, I cannot remember the last time that I smelled KFC, and I feel okay about that. Eh, well, you know, it's it's fine. It's fine. Storm is really having a hard time with the whole Marrow thing, and Wolverine, of course, tells her, Dude, you did what you had to. And she agrees, but she's really questioning herself. 
Well, she's, she's not only questioning her decision in the case of the Marrow fight, but her leadership of the X-Men in general. I am not a bad leader. I know it. But still, I behave like one half awake. Or one inconsistently written sometimes. And that's the thing, like, it's hard to really blame Storm for the fact that writers just haven't really focused on something that should be a big part of her character. Like, she took over this oppressed group of people who then had horrible, horrible things happen to them while she was off saving the world in different directions. And, like, that doesn't seem like something Storm would do, but based on continuity, clearly it is something she's done. So I do like that we have a miniseries at least attempting to directly address that. I, I dislike that her entire answer for it is to go perform a private ritual. But before she does that, she goes and she talks to Cable. They've been getting closer um, as she's been guest-starring in his book, and um, he makes some really... God, there's, there's this panel, which I think might be my least favorite panel from any X-comic ever at this point. Um, Wait, it's worse than Xavier's area? Oh, shit. Um, it, yeah, actually, I'm going to say it's worse than Xavier's area, because Xavier's area is many things, but it is not racist. Okay, let's talk about this. So, in Cable series, Cable and Storm have had gradually building subtle romantic tension. And, like, I'm fine with that. Honestly, I think that works... Yeah, I take that. That's cool. They work. Yeah, it works pretty well. They're both... They're, they're compatible. But Cable fixates on something, and I know this is supposed to be romantic, but... It's, um, it's a little weird. Abruptly, Cable becomes aware of Storm's scent. It's not like a perfume, but a natural sandalwood, musky and uncomplicated. He never noticed it before. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely some, um, really specific type of exotification and objectification of black women there. After this, he asks if he can touch her hair. But what really gets me, I mean, okay, this is silly as opposed to, like, actually problematic, but in the next panel, Cable's looking something up on a laptop and Storm is is leaning over him with her arm up, and it really just looks like he's shoving his face straight into her armpit, which, I guess when you grow up on a battlefield, you don't really learn subtleties, you're like, oh, you smell nice, I'm in your armpit, that's, that's what Cable said. Consent is important, um, I'm also really upset by the way that Cable's teeth are colored in the panel. I didn't notice that. How are his teeth colored? They're just, they're, they're just, there are more gradients than belong on teeth. And it's bad when it's the background. It's bad when it's skin. It's really bad when it's teeth. I mean, it was the 90s. You know, we had hypercolor shirts. We had fanny packs uh, that we wore in the front. And we had gradient teeth. It was just the style. No. After that, Storm goes to talk to Forge, who she's in a relationship with, although they've been drifting apart. He knows how closed off she's been and brings it up, and she wonders out loud if she's ever really known how she's felt. This actually reminds me a lot of something that happened recently in X-Men. In Leah Williams' X-Factor, which is a phenomenal series, Polaris talks explicitly about how she knows she's behaved inconsistently for many, many years, and she's not really sure who she is, and she wants to find out. And, like, when a character has been written like that, when a character has been written inconsistently to the point where their core has become kind of diffuse, like, yeah, address that shit. Make it part of the plot. I'm all about that. I mean, sucks for Forge, but he's never been a very good boyfriend anyway. Marvel, let me get that to that point with Havoc. Please, you need someone to. Seriously. So, like you alluded to, Jay, Storm does go to the Morlock Tunnels to perform the Ceremony of Light, sort of as a way to say goodbye to the Morlock, sort of as a way to apologize. 
She's not really, though. She's performing it with nighttime streetlights, which seems to me counter to its entire intent. I don't know. Like, I think that kind of works for me, actually. It's ambiguous whether that's, quote, allowed or not. But I like the idea that it's not about the sunlight necessarily, it's just about the world above, period. Because the whole point of the Ceremony of Light was to think for, to let themselves think for one day a year about a world where maybe the humans, the upworlders, would accept them. So I think it being artificial light, that's cool. Or it could be starlight. I mean, it could also be a world where they, they you know, just killed all the upworlders world, and took over. It's not really that specific. I mean, that's Gene Nation. That's not the Morlocks. It actually is really beautifully drawn. Um, the pacing visually is done extremely well here, as we just see Storm's hands reaching and placing various ornate mirrors or just shards of broken glass in various places. And then there's this large panel that just shows Storm with such joy and wonder on her face as the light comes through into this deep underground chamber. It's beautiful. Like, this is the regality, this is the majesty, and this is the passion of Aurora that I want to see, and, like, kudos to Dodson for kicking ass conveying that. But the light isn't the only thing that follows Storm into the Morlock tunnels. It's true, because suddenly a big portal opens, and Kirby dots fly out, as does a hand that yoinks her as if it were one of those curvy cane things that pulled people off vaudeville stages when they weren't doing well. It's very specific. You see, see, I was right, she's doing the ceremony wrong. <laughs> exactly. That's the, really the whole point of the plot in this issue. If only she'd done it right, then she would have gotten a standing ovation. So there's a big, ambiguous fight. We just see it from Storm's perspective, which actually really does add to the tension and the panic and the mystery, which I like, because technically this is kind of sort of a mystery story. I mean, it opens up with, like, Storm dead and Cable finding her. And one of the cool things about seeing extremely powerful characters lose fights is seeing their powers go haywire. So just having lightning blowing through the streets up above into the sky is damn impressive. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I differ with your idea that this is a mystery. There are mysterious things in it, but a mystery should be something that lays out all the clues and gives you the means to solve them as the, as the characters do. And that's not really something that we see happening at all on the other side. We, we see Storm working out what's happened for herself, but we don't really have any clues. And the, the folks on the other side mostly just worry about her being dead. And that's Cable's role in this miniseries. He's kind of the Chris to Rose De Silva, if you will t follow me back to the original Silent Hill movie in this story. And nope. then he just goes around, investigates... And doesn't really figure anything out until the very end when things happen to him. Right now, he freaks out because he sees all this lightning, and then he telepathically feels Storm's mind just go dark in the distance. And he does indeed find her body like we saw at the beginning of the story, and tells the X-Men she's dead. Now, one thing about that. The body doesn't have a face, presumably because it was crushed by lots of rocks, but Cable, dude... You remember that time that your son went back in time and wore a fake face and turned into a crime lord, and then you thought you killed that crime lord because his face was floating in the water, but in fact that was just a mask and the crime lord was fine and called himself Genesis and tried to put metal into Wolverine's bones again? So, this this comes up in the series. It doesn't come up with, with Cable, but one of the kind of great bits in, in the next issue is that Cyclops is like, yeah, I don't mourn for X-Men or acknowledge their death until there's absolute proof, because honestly, odds are really good that she's actually alive. 
Cable, have you considered that Storm might just be at the bottom of a lake in a cocoon? Or that maybe she's just on the other side of the world, consorting with demons? Or asleep. She might just be asleep. Could be. She's been through a lot. She's probably pretty tired. So that leads us, or that, or at least Storm's arrival in a landscape full of bones, having just recognized Mikhail Rasputin's power signature, brings us to Storm number two, The Ghost Has No Home. This is pretty much the same creative team as last time, but is colored solely by Ariane Lenchuk, and um, I, for one, am deeply grateful for that because the colors improve significantly at this point. So anyway, Storm is in this place called The Hill, and I want to just let the narration lead us in because it's pretty funny. The air is thin and bitter, the earth dead and dry as a desert grave. The few fauna moving breathily across the dust are fat with stolen blood, their eyes mad and poisonous. Okay, that's just straight up awesome, and I love it. I know it's over the top, I know it is more purple than the worst bruise I've ever had, and I have no apologies for my affection for this narration. To get the full effect, you really need to see it with the art, which shows us the blood-gorged fauna in question. Um, it's a lizard, and if you're not that familiar with terrestrial lizards, you might not catch why it's funny. If you are, you may notice that it's modeled very closely off a of marine iguana, um, which are vegetarian. They mostly just eat algae and hang out. They are not likely to be, uh, particularly mad, poisonous, or fat with blood stolen or otherwise. I don't know if they move breathily. I mean, maybe it just fell in with a bad crowd, and thus is stealing blood to buy, you know, candy, and it's moving breathily because it's got asthma. We don't know much about this place. Anyway, the dimension is one huge hill which Storm and her spike heels decide to climb. I'm actually completely fine with that. Like, yes, I know she has the least sensible shoes ever, but it's Storm. She can make herself regal as hell whenever she feels like it, and she mostly just flies all the time. So I would buy her not only wearing heels everywhere, even though it's impractical, but walking really well in them even when it's especially impractical. I don't know. I don't see her going for super uncomfortable stuff over, over practicality, but I guess either way. Anyway, she has a brief tangle with some acid rain, but determines pretty quickly that she can use her powers to control the local weather and and keep her herself clear of, of, again, the acid rain. There's a really cool set of panels where we see this kind of rainbow aurora in the sky above her as we see how she sees the weather as she's learning to comprehend the weather in this other dimension. Um, and it seems to be straight out of X-Men Unlimited number one, where we saw her do the same thing in the middle of that snowstorm in the Antarctic. It's really rad looking. Like, you mentioned not liking the colors in issue number one, Jay, but I really love them in number two. Yeah, I think they get much, much better. That's Aurora, the meteorological phenomenon, by the way. That is not uh, North Star's sister expressing solidarity. Right. She's, uh, I don't know, off being Canadian somewhere. Anyway, this is another dimension, and specifically, it's a dimension with techno-organic plants. And at first, it seemed like it was implying that it was Magic's limbo, but no, this is actually an entirely different limbo. It's a place called Limbo, although that's not mentioned in this miniseries. It's so weird, though, because, yeah, that techno-organic flower that Storm picks up looks like something exactly infected by the transmode virus. It looks like something we would have seen when Limbo was infected by Magus, or when Warlock tried to eat a flower. It is such a specific image that means something completely unrelated here. No, but no. Uh, 
it, it is, however, the dimension that Gene Nation comes from, and Storm recognizes their armor style from the plants. Oh, there's that, uh, that pauldron bush over there and uh, the gorget vine down the hill. I don't know, man. Anyway, uh, the people on this hill live, live on the sides of hill and spend their entire lives, generations, trying to get to the top where someone they refer to as Daddy lives. Huh. Right? So their, their main goal is to get as far up as they can, breed with people further up the hill in hopes of then producing tougher kids who can themselves get further uphill. I was thinking so hard about this because this just screams metaphor to me. Like, this right? has got to be some kind of symbolism, right? No, I don't think it is. I, I tried to find one too, but it's, it's, I, I think it's just a really awful hill. I don't know. Like, couldn't it represent capitalism in, in, in general or, 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 or Western capitalism? Or maybe it's about Storm's perceived short-sightedness that seems to be the, the theme of this? Like, this comic is making me feel dumb. No, I mean, I think it could represent those things, but I don't think it actually does. It may have been intended as a metaphor, but if so, it's a very, very partially formed one. And um, Storm starts out, speaking of short-sightedness, by jumping to the wrong conclusion. She assumes, based on on the obsession with, with uh, you know, getting as high as you can and then breeding to produce tougher kids, that daddy must be apocalypse. And that seems really foolish to me because I feel fairly strongly that the evolution-obsessed villain by far most likely to go by daddy is Mr. Sinister. That is a valid point. So what would apocalypse be? Would, would apocalypse just be Mr. Manager? No, because I Mr. Manager is by nature a position taken by someone's kid, which I guess would make Strife Mr. Manager. <laughs> You are absolutely right. Strife is Mr. Manager. So is, is, is Strife the George Michael Bluth of the X-Men? Oh, geez. I mean, that makes him more sympathetic. And it's really hard for me to imagine Strife being even remotely sympathetic. So, I don't know. It's really easy to imagine him burning down a banana stand, though. Especially one full of money. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Like, he's, he's got the same haplessness. Mm-hmm. I'm just imagining Michael Sarah wearing that armor. It's surprisingly easy to picture. So Storm, after some brief conflicts and a moment of posing maliciously, according to the narration, uh, gets to the top, spotting Callisto on the way up, and as it turns out, Daddy is neither Apocalypse nor Sinister. Daddy is in fact Mikhail Rasputin, and he wants Storm to be Mother. Mother? Ew. Meanwhile in New York, uh, Cable is finding himself hit unexpectedly hard by Storm's death, maybe because she reminds him of his late wife. He's basically going to spend the rest of the series wandering around, talking to people, trying to sort of get a better sense of who Storm was and why he cares so much. He's not really going to actually investigate her death at all. And in the process of this, he, he has a conversation with, with his parents in which... As I mentioned, Cyclops mentions that he's got a strict no-morning-until-absolute-confirmation-of-death policy for X-Men, which is so reasonable. Right? Like, you have to at least put up some lost X-Man signs around the neighborhood. Oh, so, so maybe she's just, like, at the neighbor's house shut in their bathroom so she won't fight with their other indoor superheroes? That bathroom is going to be so lightning-scorched by morning. Anyway, that brings us to Storm number three, the Tinderbox of a Heart. Uh, same creative team, except that this time colors are Ariane Lenchoek and somebody, Hostin. So Cable, in his utter lack of investigation, can't sleep and heads to the communications room. It's locked, so he just telekinetically disassembles the doorknob, speaking of unnecessary destruction. And he talks to Forge in the middle of the night. 
at this point, Forge is so just messed up by his relationship struggles with Storm that that actually seems to be what he's most worried about, rather than her being dead. I do like his line here, though. Cable, I can make anything. Tell me why I couldn't make her happy. I don't know, did you try sniffing her armpit? Forge, it's because make is a verb with multiple grammatical functions. It's making true. a toaster isn't the same as making someone happy in the same sense that cold spaghetti is better than nothing and nothing is better than peace and freedom doesn't actually mean that cold spaghetti is transitively better than peace and freedom. <laughs> well, let's go right back to the hill where most of the plot is happening as Storm and Mikhail watch a Morlock climb to the top plateau. Mikhail says, Ah, very good, my son. Very good. You attain the sacred heights of my keep. You are strong. You must be stronger. Stronger than me, even. And evolve better fingers. And he stops the Morlock's hand, and the Morlock falls to his death. So, let's talk a little about Mikhail Rasputin. The first time we saw him, he was in another dimension as a recluse winemaker and had a great deal of guilt about using his powers to mess things up, and the X-Men brought him back to Earth. That was Mikhail number one. Mikhail number two took over the Morlocks, got really messed up, and decided he needed to kill himself and kill them all. That's Mikhail number two. This is Mikhail number three, who's now got this sort of apocalypse philosophy. Who the hell is this character? It's like we've seen three different characters united only by their last name and ponytail. No, I mean, I think you pretty much nailed it. He's incredibly inconsistently written, and I think he's he's kind of got the Jamie Braddock, we just needed someone who was someone's sibling and kind of out, out there. I think so, yeah. And it's unfortunate, because honestly, Mikhail is an interesting character. As he first appeared in that old story with Sunfire and the big crater and the other dimension and the aliens who were not, in fact, predators, like... That's a compelling character, somebody having to reckon with the awesome power they have and the both damage and good it can do, and I feel like we've completely drifted away from that since then. Mark III Mikhail is definitely my least favorite so far for a number of reasons, but one of those is that he keeps calling Storm Mother, and between that and the kidnapping, it's very Peter Pan meets Mike Pence, which is a phrase I already regret having conceived and am never going to say again. <laughs> Oh god, oh god, you're not wrong. I mean, okay, I get it, because Storm's inaction with the Morlocks as their leader has kinda sorta led them to the desperation and militarization that have been turning them into Gene Nation. But you know what's done that even more? Living in this horrible acid rain Darwinist hellscape! As mandated by Mikhail, yeah. And also, like, he seems to genuinely want her to, to, you know, join him and rule by his side because he's a supervillain and she's Storm, and that is what they do. It's true, it's true. So, Storm thinks about what to do. I feel like normally she would just blow this whole place apart, but the whole point of this miniseries is that she's really starting to question her lightning-first-questions-later philosophy. So she just sort of sits there and watches, and her mind drifts to something that I actually had to look up to remind myself just what the hell it was about. Her mind drifts to a village in Africa, you know, the country of Africa, 
that had focused so much on the short term that they ran into problems in the long term. So this is actually referring to the unnamed village from Uncanny X-Men number 198, Life Death 2, that phenomenal Barry Windsor Smith drawn one-shot. In that story, there was an African village that had relied so much on new farming technology over tradition that the land had been ruined, and they'd been forced to adopt a strict population control policy that involved old people going off to die when babies were born. So, it's a weird non-sequitur of a reference, it will be relevant later, but it feels just super shoehorned in at this point. Eh, a lot about the- th this whole series feels shoehorned in. I mean, there are good aspects of it, and I love that Storm finally has a miniseries, and I like many aspects of the art, and I think Ellis has Storm's personality down pretty well. It, yeah, it just doesn't really come together. So Storm gets in a fight with some nearby Morlocks who are trying to pull her off the plateau with a rope dart, and as usual when she's restrained, she blows everything up. Mikhail explains to her, hey, it's cool, nobody dies here, everybody heals super fast, all they're left with are scars. People do die. They only die of old age, though. No one, no one dies of injuries or in battle. Right. Uh, so this, again, I'm thinking, metaphor. What is this metaphor about? I mean, is it about how the decisions you make have consequences, but you never know what they're going to be, so all you're left is a mark upon your very soul? Uh-huh. Yeah, probably not. He also explains that time passes differently here. Um, since she has come, years have probably passed on Earth. And he introduces her to some members of Gene Nation, some of whom she's already met. I mean, we have Hemingway, we have Vessel, we have Dr. Bone. I mean, Sack. But they have these rad new names. Pain. Snow. Loss. Glass. And charm. What are they, quarks? Feel like some of them got the theme more than others, and also like at least half of them are Metal Gear Solid bosses. Oh yeah, like for Metal Gear Solid 3. Maybe one of them's got bees up inside him. Now, their plan is to blow up X-Factor HQ for colluding with humans. And they are doing this even though, according to Mikhail, it is going to be, you know, the far future. They're like, well, still. Still. We'll make the it'll make our point. On principle. And one of them challenges Storm to yet another goddamn duel when Callisto shows up and is like, hey, I invented this whole dueling Storm thing, get the fuck in line. This is a Callisto who's even older than last time we saw her, although that'll be forgotten by continuity soon. And she feels like she's been usurped by Storm yet again. She was Mikhail's former mate in the hill, and now Mikhail wants Storm to be Mother Pence, and so Callisto's super jealous and thus super stabby. I don't know, Jay, what do we think about this direction for Callisto? Because she had gotten really complex and sympathetic, and now it just seems like she's back to being a one-note character like when she started. Well, if we're sticking with the Peter Pan metaphor, she's definitely an appropriate Tinkerbell to Storm's Wendy. She'd look pretty good in that green dress, I think. No, Flying but, around but with fairy it, dust. have you have you have you actually read the 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 Jam Berry book? I have, yes. Okay, well, it's fucked up and brilliant, but um, yeah. So it it actually kind of has that feel to me, or that this relationship kind of has that feel in some ways. But more to the point, I uh, you you talked about the ways in which Storm doesn't get to evolve, and I feel like that goes double for Callisto. Callisto was so much more interesting the last time we saw her on Earth than she is here. And it's the same Callisto, and I want her to be resisting. I want her to be 
Callisto is so much better than just running with the status quo, and she is definitely not going to hook up with Mikhail Rasputin. Like, I, I reject that outright. Why would you hook up with Mikhail Rasputin? You never know which Mikhail you're going to get, you know? Nice hair, I guess. He does have a nice ponytail. Suddenly, Mikhail and his ponytail panic and scream and his teleportation powers activate. Because apparently, whenever somebody does a ceremony of light in the Morlock tunnels on Earth, he involuntarily opens a portal there. Why the fuck would that happen? Why the fuck would his powers work that way? That makes zero sense. So, I actually do have a reason for that, or at least I have an explanation, and it relates to the person he refers to as the Master. Rigging it and setting it up with the Morlocks as a ritual, but using it as a means to stay in regular, connect, re- regular communication with Mikhail. You know, that's a really good point, and as we talk about that master later in the episode, let's, let's come back to that. Okay, I rescind my confusion and anger. For now. I mean, there are a lot of things to be confused and angry about in this miniseries. You've got options. Hooray! So there's a big standoff. Callisto is bitter and talks about how Mikhail just wanted her over Callisto, and so Mikhail grabbed one of the random warlocks that looked kind of like Storm and cut her face off and put her under a rock so everyone would think she'd be dead. And actually, time doesn't flow the way Mikhail said, and she could totally get back to Earth and it would be fine. So Storm tells Mikhail to do that or she'll cut his throat. And the Morlocks say, okay, but whatever happens, we're just going to blow everybody up because we love bombs, even if the detonator's not attached to our hearts. Ah, uh, that would be Gene Nation, not the Morlocks. They are, they are pointed in the distinction. Very true. The Gene Nationals, as they're called. Yes. And that takes us to Storm number four. She will destroy you. Which pretty much, you know, is what it says on the tin, and we don't really even need to talk about it. No, sorry. Anyway. Storm gets around Gene Nation's ultimatum by daring Mikhail to port the whole hill back to Earth, which I guess he does. Where the hell does he put it? In the Morlock tunnels, it would seem, which is weird because the hill is a small dimension, sure, but it's a dimension. And while we have been shown by Paul Smith's art way back in the day that the alley where the Morlocks lived was pretty big, I don't think it's, like, small dimension big. It would definitely, at the very least, break through the surface and extend pretty far into Manhattan. Yeah. Well, they run into Cable, who was the one who did his own ceremony of light to say goodbye to Storm, and I really love the narration and dialogue as this happens, as the teleportation circle unexpectedly opens. Something falls from Cable's face, itself alive with sparkles. He says goodbye, and then he says, What in? Because Gene Nation has arrived, along with a whole dimension. It's, it's actually pretty hilarious. Uh, Storm, for her part, is back in her native dimension, so her weather powers are back to full strength, and she just uses her wind to grab the Morlock's bomb, have it navigate through the weaving, complicated Morlock tunnels, and go straight up into the sky above New York and safely explode. I think that Storm got incredibly lucky there by assuming that it was not a dirty bomb, because the odds that... that whatever came from the other dimension just irradiated all of Manhattan via her her tactic seem not worth gambling. Or at the very least, that thing's probably full of stolen blood and, like, I don't know, cactus gauntlets. Oh god, it's just full of iguanas. <laughs> it's just the iguana bomb. Genations. They're fine. They just, they, there's just, like, hundreds of them, they just parachute gently down. It's actually majestic. Everyone just looks up in awe, and they hold their loved ones to their side, and they know that they will never forget this day. 
the day the iguanas fell like so much snow. Yeah, that can be shoveling for weeks, though. Oh god, just bags of iguanas, big garbage bags, and the iguanas are just glaring at them and stealing their blood. Oh, don't put them in garbage bags, they can't breathe. Be nice to iguanas. But iguanas should not be outdoor animals in New York during most of the year. It is really not an environment that's suited for them. Yeah, you hear that, Gene Nation? You jerks. Be kind to your iguanas. Keep them in appropriate habitats. Maybe that's what this series is about. No. Callista's pretty generally annoyed about this whole situation, so Storm just blasts her in the face and severely scars her, it would seem. Then dumps her into the sewer, right? Yeah, and this is another thing where I'm like, okay, this has got to be a metaphor, right? Mikhail was talking about how people couldn't die of injury, they could only get scars, and now Callisto's got scars, and like her appearance has always kind of been a thing with her character, so maybe that's what it's about. Nah. Oh, God damn it, Ellis, Ellis, you're killing me. Thankfully, Callisto, as she wanders around holding her scarred face, finds a friend. That's right, there to fish her out of the dirty sewer waters is Marrow, who apparently had a spare backup heart all this time, and uh, they'll be friends again, so that's cool, I guess. That's her whole explanation. She's like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, I had another heart. It's cool. I really appreciate this utter hand-wavy cop-out. I appreciate how little anyone even tried to come up with a better justification for how Marrow lived. You know what? It makes no less sense than the vast majority of things on the page in X-Men comics. I got no problem with it. Maybe she's a Time Lord. Seems unlikely. Mikhail either discorporates or teleports back, it's a little unclear, but all his dudes think that Storm killed him, so now they respect her and she's their leader again. And what she decides to do is send them to the village from Life Death 2 to farm it, because the best thing possible to do in a village whose population is already straining its resources, is send a bunch of murderous guys with no agricultural background. Hey guys, uh, you remember that time I was hearing that beautiful Barry Windsor Smith issue? Uh, yeah, it's good to see you again. Hey, I have a solution for some of your problems. Have a whole lot of monsters who love to kill people. Okay, bye! Maybe they can eat them? It's such a bizarre decision. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm all for referencing older, more obscure stories, especially when it's so high quality a story as Life Death 2, but why in this story? That is just so bizarre. This is a terrible solution, and it's also a really, really imperialist solution in in terms of, of like, let's, let, let us, this group in a position of proportional privilege, Send a group of people to do penance by helping a vulnerable community. Let's treat helping this vulnerable community and, and, and you know, joining into it as penance. And not the one that hangs out with Generation X. No, she's lovely. We bring her apples and butterflies. Or the one that Speedball turned into after he blew up a school. We pretty much don't acknowledge him. Well, let's talk about the most important consequence of this series, which is Storm's new costume when she comes back to the X-Mansion. So, she has decided that she's, she's going to have a, a new costume, and she does, she does a fancy entrance the way she did when she got the punk look, and I gotta say, this is, I, I've, I've mentioned again and again, overdrawn at the memory bank, and don't put a good movie in the middle of your kind of bad movie. Don't reference a really well-done scene and design in this comic. 
Like, so unless is- you are certain that Storm's makeover is going to be absolutely groundbreaking and possibly, like, make a whole generation of young female readers newly aware of their sexual orientation, you don't want to go out on that reference because ultimately this is a really lackluster reveal compared to Paul Smith. Storm has, Storm now has a bob with, with long strands in the front and she's got a sexy new costume, which her costume is okay. Her costume is an interesting spin on, I, I feel like her, her original Bronze Age costume a little bit. Um, yeah, it shows more of her midriff and her shoulders, and it's got that characteristic storm cape. In this case, she's wearing tight pants with heels, um, but it does have a bit of that same feel. And in fact, she'll soon resume wearing her old headdress from the Bronze Age. This is a Joe Matarera costume design. Um, you know, Joe Matarera is doing X-Men at this point, and so he was the one that redesigned her, and this series was uh, in part designed to introduce the look. I don't know, it's... It's kind of cool. I mean, I don't think it's Storm's best look. I don't think it's her worst. I think it probably was time for her to get something new after being in that Jim Lee-designed costume for so long. Yeah, agreed. And I think that, I mean, ultimately, I think Storm's had much better costumes since, since it had better costumes before. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't think it, I just don't think it merits that much awe and that much of a reveal because it's not that much of a departure from, from things she's worn before. However, um... Cable thinks that she looks very nice, and actually the series literally ends with her thanking him for saying that, which is anticlimactic and also terrible. Yeah, I mean, you know, Storm is a, a romantic and sexual person, so it's totally fine that, that that matters to her, but that's a weird place to end it, given that it was about, uh, what was it about? There was a hill, and I think some stuff of, oh my god, I just got it. What is it, Jay? Maybe the mess of this entire miniseries is an extended parable on the importance of thinking in the long term and planning out your whole miniseries instead of just going issue by issue. Jay, I think you've got it. I think that's exactly it. And I feel much better about life now. You know who doesn't feel too good about life? Dark Beast. Right, Dark Beast is pretty damn annoyed that Storm McHale cut short his interdimensional selective breeding experiment honestly, who even cares what he thinks? Yeah, Dark Beast, who at this point in continuity has secretly replaced Normal Beast by literally pulling a cask of Amontillado plot on him, uh, was the master that Mikhail briefly referenced at one point. Mikhail was Dark Beast's henchman. How did that happen? Eh, who knows. But I will say, this whole thing, the thing with the hill and time and selective breeding, that's very much a Dark Beast-style plan, which I appreciate, because, you know... The Sugar Man, the other science import from the Age of Apocalypse, what he's up to in Genosha doesn't fit him at all. So, well done with your consistency, Dark Beast, and you're totally just redoing the cast of Amontillado. A quick clarification, him walling Beast in has happened, and replacing him has happened by the time this miniseries takes place. It has not happened by the point that Miles and I previously were in X-Men continuity, and it will not have happened when we go back to that continuity next week. Just to keep things simple... Speaking of things that are not simple, our listeners have some questions. Richard is good asks on Tumblr, what do you think are the most obscure stories you've covered over the last six years and change? Oh, probably in comics, I would say probably either Wolverine Killing or that one State Fair special. In general, Jubilee's costume party tattoo tales is probably up there. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I, um... 
I'm so pleased we could introduce the world to that while also covering the death of Doug Ramsey. It was a pretty balanced episode. I'm never gonna stop remembering Gambit and his bicycle horn. <laughs> yeah. Let's see, obscure stories. Um, there was Beauty and the Beast, which I don't think a lot of people have read, although it has been collected. I feel like the New Mutant Summer Special, the one that was all about media theory and was written by Anne Nascenti, is pretty obscure, as was Peter David's Reign of Terra, where... Rain had that world where she was kind of a princess and it was weird. Oh, or maybe some of the Marvel Comics present stuff that we've covered, like the Cyclops versus Conscience story, or the Excalibur one where they fought versions of the Looney Tunes. Wolverine killing, though. Wolverine killing. This is actually something I'm curious about. Uh, listeners, I feel like we don't have a lot of perspective on what is or isn't obscure just because we're so deep in this stuff. So if there's anything that you've discovered that you never would have heard of otherwise from the show and ended up liking or ended up hating for that matter, I'd be curious to hear about it. Yeah, I'd love to know that as well. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, do Logan, Laura, and others with a healing factor need to eat to survive? Their healing already produces more mass than they presumably eat. To that, I must only answer with Logan's most famous line about food from X-Men the Animated Series. <laughs> Turkey. Okay, but no, for real, it's a good question. And not one with a defined answer. Like, honestly, this stuff just doesn't make sense and it's inconsistent. But I will say, in New X-Men number 148, toward the end of the Morrison run... Logan talks to Jean about having had to eat his own regenerating flesh while he was trapped under a glacier for six months. But then again, half his memories are implants, so who can say if that's real? You're right, though. The way Logan's healing factor works, he technically shouldn't need to eat. My favorite theory about how that happens is that just like Cyclops' eyes are portals to a dimension of pure force, Logan's cells are portals to a dimension of pure meat. That makes me happy. Wait, that's actually a theory? I mean, it's a fan theory. And it's a good one. A dimension of pure meat. You know, meat space, or meatheim, or meattopia. Or the I, meat I, circus if you want to be psycho-Nazi about it. I don't think that's what people generally mean when they say meat space, Miles. In this case, it is. But seriously, even if Logan doesn't need food, he does seem to have standard human feelings and reactions. So he definitely gets hungry. We've seen that many, many times before. So I'm guessing in the case of the glacier that he was referring to, maybe he didn't need to eat to survive, but maybe he was just getting so hungry that his willpower gave out and he said, screw it, eating my own arm and waiting for it to grow back is probably better than experiencing this, these pangs in my belly. Maybe he was just bored. Maybe he was just bored. I mean, six months is like a really long time to be stuck inside. Even longer in Wolverine years. Very true. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with acknowledgement on air from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's leave meat space to hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Brody Cersei. Joshua. I think you both know exactly what you did. To ask why you did it would presume a level of cogency I am reluctant to assume. So let's just take that as read and move directly to the scathing glare and subtle headshake. <sighs> Honestly. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Factor, having narrowly missed explosion at the hands of Gene Nation, nonetheless fails to recognize its good luck. <laughs>